Thing in the Hall by E.F. Benson. The following pages are the account given to me by Dr. Ashton of The Thing in the Hall. I took notes, as copious as my quickness of hand allowed me from his dictation, and subsequently read to him this narrative in its transcribed and connected form. This was on the day before his death, which indeed probably occurred within an hour after I had left them, and as readers of inquests and such atrocious literature may remember, I had to give evidence before the coroner's jury. Only a week before, Dr. Ashton had to give similar evidence, but as a medical expert with regard to the death of his friend, Louis Fielder, which occurred in a manner identical with his own. As a specialist, he said he believed that his friend had committed suicide while of unsound mind, and the verdict was brought in accordingly. But in the inquest held over Dr. Ashton's body, though the verdict eventually returned was the same, there was more room for doubt. For I was bound to state that only shortly before his death, I read what follows to him, and he corrected me with extreme precision on a few points of detail that he seemed perfectly himself, and that at the end he used these words. I am quite certain, as a brain specialist, that I am completely sane, and that these things happened not merely in my imagination, but in the external world. If I had to give evidence again about poor Louise, I should be compelled to take a different line. Please put that down at the end of your account or at the beginning if it arranges itself better so. There will be a few words I must add at the end of the story, and a few words of explanation must precede it. Briefly, they are these. Francis Ashton and Louis Fielder were up in Cambridge together, and there formed the friendship that lasted nearly till their death. In general, attributes no two men could have been less alike. For while Dr. Ashton had become at the age of 35 the first and final authority on his subject, which was the functions and disease of the brain, Louis Fielder at the same age was still on the threshold of achievement. Ashton, apparently without any brilliance at all, had by careful and incessant work arrived at the top of his profession, while Fielder, brilliant at school, brilliant at college, and brilliant ever afterward, had never done anything. He was too eager, so it seemed, to find his friends, to set out the dreary work of patient investigation and logical deductions. He was forever guessing and prying, and striking out luminous ideas which he left burning, so to speak, to illumine the work of others. But at bottom, the two men had this compelling interest in common, namely an insatiable curiosity after the unknown perhaps the most potent bond yet devised between the solitary units that make up the race of man. Both, till the end, were absolutely fearless, and Dr. Ashton would sit by the bedside of the man stricken with bubonic plague to note the gradual surge of the tide of disease to the reasoning faculty with the same absorption as Fielder would study x-rays one week, flying machines the next, and spiritualism the third. The rest of the story, I think, explains itself, or does not quite do so. This, anyhow, was what I read to Dr. Ashton, being the connected narrative of what he had himself told me. It is he, of course, who speaks. After I returned from Paris, where I'd studied under Charcot, I set up practice at home. 
the general doctrine of hypnotism, suggestion, and cure by such means had been accepted even in London by this time, and owing to a few papers I had written on the subject, together with my foreign diplomas, I found that I was a busy man almost as soon as I arrived in town. Louis Fielder had his ideas about how I should make my debut, for he had ideas on every subject and all of them original, and entreated me to come and live, not in the stronghold of doctors, chloroform square, as he called it, but down in Chelsea, where there was a house vacant next to his own. Who cares where a doctor lives, he said, so long as he cures people. Besides, you don't believe in old methods. Why well, believe in old localities? Oh, there is an atmosphere of painless death in chloroform square. Come and make people live instead. And on most evenings, I shall have so much to tell you. I can't drop in across half London. Now, if you have been abroad for five years, it is a great deal to know that you have any intimate friend at all still left in the metropolis, and as Louis said, to have that intimate friend next door is an excellent reason for going next door. Above all, I remembered from Cambridge days what Louis's dropping in meant. Toward bedtime, when work was over, there would come a rapid step on the landing, and for an hour or two hours he would gush with ideas. He simply diffused life, which is ideas, wherever he went. He fed one's brain, which is the one thing which matters. Most people who are ill are ill because their brain is starving, and the body rebels and gets lumbargo or cancer. That is the chief doctrine of my work, such as it had been. All bodily disease springs from the brain. It's merely the brain that has to be fed and rested and exercised properly to make the body absolutely healthy and immune from all disease. But when the brain is affected, it is as useful to pour medicine down the sink as make your patients swallow them, unless, and this is a paramount limitation, unless he believes in them. I said something of the kind to Lewis one night when, at the end of a busy day, I had dined with him. We were sitting together over coffee in the hall, or so it is called, where he takes his meals. Outside, his house is just like mine and 10,000 other small houses in London, but on entering, instead of finding a narrow passage with a door on one side leading into the dining room, which again communicates with a small back room called the study, he has this sense to eliminate all unnecessary walls, and consequently the whole ground floor of his house is one room, with stairs leading up to the first floor study, dining room, and passage have been knocked into one. You enter a big room from the front door. The only drawback is that the postman makes loud noises close to you as you dine, and just as I made these commonplace observations to him about the effect of the brain on the body and the senses, there came a loud rap somewhere close to me that was startling. You ought to muffle your knocker, I said. Anyhow, during the time of meals. Lewis leaned back and laughed. <laughs> there isn't a knocker, he said. You were startled a week ago and said the same thing, so I took the knocker off. The letters slide in now, but you heard a knock, did you? Didn't you? said I. Why, certainly. But it wasn't the postman. It was the thing. I don't know what it is. That makes it so interesting. Now, if there was one thing that the hypnotist, the believer in unexplained influences, detests and despises, it is the whole root notion of spiritualism. 
Drugs are not more opposed to his belief than the exploded, discredited idea of the influence of spirits on our lives. And both are discredited for the same reason. It is easy to understand how brain can act on brain, just as it is easy to understand how body can act on body, so that there is more difficulty in the reception of the idea that the strong mind can direct the weak one, than there is the fact of a wrestler of greater strength overcoming one of less. But that spirits should rap at furniture and divert the course of events is as absurd as administering phosphorus to strengthen the brain. That is what I thought then. However, I felt sure it was the postman, and instantly rose and went to the door. There were no letters in the box, and I opened the door. The postman was just descending the steps. He gave the letters into my hand. Lewis was sipping his coffee when I came back to the table. Have you ever tried table turning? he asked. It's rather odd. No, and I have not tried violet leaves as a cure for cancer, I said. Try everything he said. I know that is your plan, just as it is mine. All these years you've been away, you've tried all sorts of things, first with no faith, then with just a little faith, and finally with mountain-moving faith. Why don't you believe in hypnotism at all when you went to Paris? He rang the bell as he spoke, and his servant came up and cleared the table. While this was being done, we strolled about the room, looking at prints with applause for Bartolozzi that Lewis had brought into the new cut, and dead silence over the Perdita, which had been acquired at considerable cost. Then he sat down again at the table on which we had dined. It was round and mahogany-heavy, with a central foot divided into claws. Try its weight, he said. See if you can push it about. So... I held the edge of it in my hands and found that I could just move it, but that was all. It required the exercise of a good deal of strength to stir it. Now put your hands on the top of it, he said, and see what you can do. I could not do anything. My fingers merely slipped about on top, but I protested at the idea of spending the evening thus. I would much sooner play chess or knots and crosses with you, I said or even talk about politics, than turn tables. You won't mean to push nor shall, but we shall push without meaning to. Lewis nodded. Just a minute, he said. Let us both put our fingers only on the top of the table and push for all we are worth from right to left. We pushed. At least I pushed, and I observed his fingernails. From pink, they grew to white because of the pressure he exercised so I must assume that he pushed too. Once as we tried this, the table creaked, but it did not move. Then there came a quick, peremptory rap. Not, I thought, on the front door, but somewhere in the room. It's the thing, said he. Today, as I speak to you, I suppose it was, but on that evening it seemed only like a challenge. I wanted to demonstrate its absurdity. For five years, on and off, I've been studying rank spiritualism, he said. I haven't told you before because I wanted to lay before you certain phenomenon which I can't explain, but which now seem to me to be at my command. You shall see and hear and then decide if you will help me. And in order to let me see better, you're proposing to put out the lights, I said. Yes, 
You will see why. I am here as a skeptic, said I. Skep away, said he. Next moment, the room was in darkness, except for a very faint glow of firelight. The window curtains were thick, and no street illumination penetrated them, and the familiar, cheerful sounds of pedestrians and wheeled traffic came in muffled. I was at the side of the table towards the door. Lewis was opposite me, for I could see his figure dimly silhouetted against the glow from the smoldering fire. Put your hands on the table, he said, quite lightly, and, how shall I say it, expect. Still protesting in spirit, I expected. I could hear his breathing rather quickened, and it seemed to me odd that anybody could find excitement in standing in the dark over a large mahogany table, expecting. Then, through my fingertips laid lightly on the table, there began to come a faint vibration, like nothing so much as the vibration through the handle of a kettle when the water is beginning to boil inside it. This got gradually more pronounced and violent till it was like the throbbing of a motor car. It seemed to give off a low humming note. And quite suddenly, the table seemed to slip from under my fingers and begin very slowly to revolve. Keep your hands on it. Move with it, said Lewis. And as he spoke, I saw his silhouette pass away from in front of the fire, moving as the table moved. For some moments, there was silence and we continued, rather absurdly, to circle around, keeping step, so to speak, with the table. Then Lewis spoke again, and his voice was trembling with excitement. Are you there? he said. There was no reply, of course, and he asked again. This time there came a rap like that which I thought during dinner to be the postman. But whether it was that the room was dark, or that despite myself I felt rather excited too, it seemed to me now to be far louder than before. Also it appeared to come neither from here nor there, but to be diffused through the room. Then the curious revolving of the table ceased, but the intense violent throbbing continued. My eyes were fixed on it, though owing to the darkness I could see nothing, when quite suddenly a little speck of light moved across it, so that for an instant I saw my own hands. Then came another and another, like the spark of matches struck in the dark, or like fireflies crossing the dusk in southern gardens. Then came another knock of shattering loudness, and the throbbing of the table ceased and the lights vanished. Such were the phenomena at the first seance at which I was present, but Fielder, it must be remembered, had been studying, expecting, he called it, for some years. To adopt spiritualistic language, which at that time I was very far from doing, he was the medium, I merely the observer, and all the phenomena I had seen that night were habitually produced or witnessed by him. I make this limitation since he told me that certain of them now appeared to be outside his own control altogether. The knockings would come when his mind, as far as he knew, was entirely occupied in other matters, and sometimes he'd even been awakened out of his sleep by them. The lights were also independent of his volition. Now, my theory at the time was that all these things were purely subjective in him, and that what he expressed by saying that they were out of his control meant that they had become fixed and rooted in the unconscious self of which we know so little, but which more and more we see to play such an enormous part in the life of man. 
In fact, it is not too much to say that the vast majority of our deeds spring, apparently without volition, from this unconscious self. All hearing is unconscious exercise of the oral nerve. All seeing of the optic, all walking, all ordinary movements seem to be done without the exercise of will on our part. Nay more should we take to some new form of progression, skating for instance. The beginner will learn with falls and difficulty the outside edge, but within a few hours of his having learned his balance on it, he will give no more thought to what he learned so short a time ago as an acrobatic feat and he gives to the placing of one foot before the other. But to the brain specialist, all this was intensely interesting, and to the student of hypnotism, as I was even more so, for such was the conclusion I came to after this first seance, the fact that I saw and heard just what Louis saw and heard was an expedition of thought transference, which in all my experience in the Charcot schools, I had never seen surpassed, if indeed rivaled. I knew that I was myself extremely sensitive to suggestion, and my part in it this evening I believed to be purely that of the receiver of suggestions so vivid that I visualized and heard these phenomena which existed only in the brain of my friend. We talked over what had occurred upstairs. His view was that the thing was trying to communicate with us. According to him, it was the thing that moved the table and tapped and made us see streaks of light. Yes, but the thing, I interrupted. What do you mean? Is it a great uncle? Oh, I've seen so many relatives appear at seances and heard so many of their dreadful palpitudes. What is it? A spirit? Whose spirit? Lewis was sitting opposite to me, and on the little table before us there was an electric light. Looking at him, I saw the pupil of his eyes suddenly dilate. To the medical man, provided that some violent change in the light is not the cause of the dilation, that meant only one thing. Terror. But it quickly resumed its normal proportion again. Then he got up and stood in front of the fire. No, I don't think it is a great uncle anybody, he said. I don't know, as I told you, what the thing is, but if you ask me what my conjecture is, it is that the thing is an elemental. And pray explain further, what is an elemental? Once again, his eye dilated. It will take two minutes, he said, but listen. There are good things in this world, are there not? And bad things. Cancer, I take it, is bad. And a fresh air is good. Honesty is good. Lying is bad. Impulses of some sort direct both sides, and some power suggests the impulses. Well, I went into this spiritualistic business impartially. I learned to expect, to throw open the door into the soul, and I said, anyone may come in. And I think something has applied for admission. The thing that tapped and turned the table and struck matches as you saw across it. Now, the control of the evil principle in the world is in the hands of a power which entrusts its errands to the things which I call elementals. They have not been seen. I doubt that they will be seen again. I did not, and do not, ask good spirits to come in. I don't want the church's one foundation played on a musical box, nor do I want an elemental. I only threw open the door. 
I believe the thing has come to my house and is establishing communication with me. Oh, I want to go the whole hog. What is it? In the name of Satan, if necessary, what is it? I just want to know. What followed, I thought then, might easily be an intervention of the imagination. But what I believed to have happened was this. A piano with music on it was standing at the far end of the room by the door, and a sudden draught entered the room so strong that the leaves turned. Next time the draught troubled a vase of daffodils, and the yellow heads nodded. Then it reached the candles that stood close to us, and they fluttered, burning blue and low. Then it reached me, and the draught was cold and stirred my hair. Then it eddied, so to speak, and went across to Lewis, and his hair also moved, as I could see. Then it went downward toward the fire. The flame suddenly started up in its path, blown upwards. The rug by the fireplace flapped also. Funny, wasn't it? he asked. And has the elemental gone up the chimney? said I. Oh no, said he. The thing only passed us. Then suddenly, he pointed at the wall just behind my chair, and his voice cracked as he spoke. Look, what's that? he said. There, on the wall. Considerably startled, I turned in the direction of his shaking finger. The wall was pale gray in tone, and sharp cut against it was a shadow that, as I looked, moved. It was like the shadow of some enormous slug, legless and fat, some two feet high, about four feet long. Only at one end of it was a head shaped like the head of a seal with open mouth and painting tongue. And even as I looked, it faded, and from somewhere close, a hand there sounded another of those shattering knocks. For a moment after, there was silence between us, and horror was thick as snow in the air. But somehow, neither Luis nor I was frightened for more than a moment. The whole thing was so absorbingly interesting. That's what I mean by being outside of my control, he said. I said I was ready for any, any visitor to come in, and by God, we've got a beauty. Now I was still, even in spite of the appearance of the shadow, quite convinced I was only taking observations of a most curious case of disordered brain accompanied by the most vivid and remarkable thought transference. I believed that I had not seen a slug-like shadow at all, but that Luis had visualized this dreadful creature so intensely that I saw what he saw. I found also that his spiritualistic trash books, which I thought a truer nomenclature than textbooks, mentioned this as a common form for elementals to take. He, on the other hand, was more firmly convinced than ever that we were dealing not with a subjective but an objective phenomenon. For the next six months or so, we sat constantly, but made no further progress, nor did the thing or its shadow appear again, and I began to feel that we were really wasting our time. And then it occurred to me to get in a so-called medium, induce hypnotic sleep, and see if we could learn anything further. This we did sitting as before round at the dining room table. The room was not quite dark, and I could see sufficiently clearly what happened. The medium, a young man, sat between Lewis and myself, and without the slightest difficulty, I put him into a light hypnotic sleep. 
Instantly there came a series of the most terrific raps, and across the table there slid something more palpable than a shadow, with a faint luminance about it, as if the surface of it was smoldering. At the moment, the medium's face became contorted to a mask of hellish terror. Mouth and eyes were both opened, and the eyes were focused on something close to him. The thing, waving its head, came closer and closer to him and reached out toward his throat. Then, with a yell of panic and warding off this horror with his hands, the medium sprang up, but it had already caught hold, and for the moment he could not get free. And simultaneously, Lewis and I went to his aid, and my hands touched something cold and slimy. But pull as we could, we could not get it away. There was no firm handhold to be taken. It was as if one tried to grasp slimy fur, and the touch of it was horrible, unclean, like a leper. Then, in a sort of despair, though I could still not believe that the horror was real, for it must be a vision of diseased imagination, I remembered that the switch of the four electric lights was close to my hand. I turned them all on. There, on the floor, lay the medium. Lewis was kneeling by him with a face of wet paper, but there was nothing else there. Only the collar of the medium was crumpled and torn, and on his throat were two scratches that bled. The medium was still in hypnotic sleep, and I woke him. He felt at his collar, put his hand to his throat, and found it bleeding, but, as I expected, knew nothing, whatever, of what had passed. We told him that there had been an unusual manifestation, and he had, while in sleep, wrestled into something. We'd got the result we wished for, and were much obliged to him. I never saw him again. A week after that, he died of blood poisoning. From that evening dates the second stage of this adventure. The thing had materialized. I use again spiritualistic language which I still did not use at the time. The huge slug, the elemental manifested itself no longer by knocks and waltzing tables, nor yet by shadows. It was there in a form that could be seen and felt. But it still, this was my strong point, was only a thing of twilight. The sudden kindling of the electric light had shown us that there was nothing there. In this struggle, perhaps the medium had clutched his own throat. Perhaps I had grasped Lewis's sleeve, he mine, but though I say these things to myself, I'm not sure that I believe them in the same way that I believe the sun will rise tomorrow. Now, as a student of brain functions and a student in hypnotic affairs, I ought perhaps to have steadily and unremittingly pursued this extraordinary series of phenomena. But I had my practice to attend to, and I found that with the best will in the world, I could think of nothing else except the occurrence in the hall next door. So, I refused to take part in any further seance with Lewis. I had another reason also. For the last four or five months, he was becoming depraved. I have been no prude or puritan in my own life, and I hope I have not turned a pharisaical shoulder on sinners. But in all branches of life and morals, Lewis had become infamous. He was turned out of a club for cheating at cards and narrated the event to me with gusto. He'd become cruel. He tortured his cat to death. He had become bestial. 
I used to shudder as I passed his house, expecting I knew not what fiendish things to be looking at me from the window. Then came a night only a week ago, when I was awakened by an awful cry, swelling and falling and rising again. It came from next door. I ran downstairs in my pajamas and out into the street. The policeman on the beat had heard it too, and it came from the hall of Lewis's house, the window of which was open. Together we burst the door in. You know what we found. The screaming had ceased but a moment before, but he was dead already. Both jugulars were severed, torn open. It was dawn, early and dusky, when I got back to my house next door. Even as I went in, something seemed to push by me, something soft and slimy. It could not be Lewis's imagination this time. Since then, I've seen glimpses of it every evening. I'm awakened at night by tappings, and in the shadows in the corner of my room, there sits something more substantial than a shadow. Within an hour of leaving my Dr. Ashton, the quiet street was once more aroused by cries of terror and agony. He was already dead, and in no other manner than his friend when they got into the house. I Hate My Friend's Pet by Brian Young I've recently realized that the older you get, the fewer close friends you retain. You get so caught up with real-world stuff that you forget about the people who've made monumental impacts on your life. That harsh reality hit when one of my closest friends, whom I hadn't spoken to for a while, DM'd our group chat with the devastating news that he was terminally ill. The impact of just a few text messages hit me like the force of a grenade in a 10 by 10 room. As the wave of I love yous and we need to see each other soon poured into the chat, I kind of just sat there reading the message over and over again. My mind thought back on all the memories I'd shared with this person and how in a moment all the memories we had yet to make were taken away. Not just in that moment, but in all the moments I had prioritized other things over the meaningful people in my life, it was a jarring realization. Suffice it to say, not only did I make plans to see that friend and give them all the support and love that I could, I took two weeks off to take a little road trip and reconnect with many of the people I was beginning to lose touch with. For everyone out there, I highly recommend you do the same. Please. Reach out to the people you've spent years caring about. You never know when the last time will be the last time. If you can, keep those meaningful connections alive. Anyway, it turned out to be a really great trip. Not only did I get to see a lot of the country I hadn't seen, but reestablishing those old connections made me feel more complete. On my way back, I had one more person to visit, and it was probably the person I had the most solid connection with. I don't want to put his real name out there, so I'll call him Jacob. Jacob and I had known each other since we were in elementary school, and were inseparable until I went away to college. When I told him about my trip and that his house was the one I was most excited to hit, the feeling was clearly mutual. Recently, he moved back to his childhood home after losing his apartment, and as childish as it may sound, 
I was excited to be in the same rooms we played in as kids. When I arrived at his place, I saw him sitting outside and smoking something with a familiar aroma. I greeted him with a very loud, What up, brother man? He returned a warm smile and we embraced. From there, we got to talking like only childhood friends could, going from subjects ranging from the monotonous to political to weird in a way. Only those closest to you can understand. When we finally made our way inside, a distinctly older version of his family greeted me with a fully cooked homemade meal. The love radiating from them hadn't missed a beat from years ago. I'm not sure which part of your brain is responsible for nostalgia, but that little bit lit up like a Christmas tree as we all sat down to eat and talked about the years that had passed. Everything was just the way I remembered it to be. In an oddly personal moment, Jacob's mother commented about how the timing of my trip was perfect. When I asked why, she revealed that Jacob had been struggling since losing his apartment and a longtime girlfriend, and that it had made it difficult for him to hold steady work. I wanted to tell her it wasn't best to discuss that at a dinner in a family setting. Still, Jacob seemed to agree and gave me a soft nod when I responded awkwardly, Yeah, man. I'm I'm here for you. Half out of necessity and half because the conversion was getting a tad uncomfortable, I excused myself to the bathroom right past Jacob's old room. It wasn't until then that I discovered the first thing that felt shockingly different. A passing glance at Jacob's uncharacteristically clean room revealed that taking up nearly all the space on the table next to his bed was a large white cage. My first instinct was confusion. My first instinct was confusion. Not only that my friend, who was an unapologetically disorganized person, had maintained a room that didn't have so much as a speck of dust lying around, but this same person had a massive fear of rodents, and yet, in front of an impressively built model house that nearly reached the top of the cage, stood a chubby brown rat. And when I say stood, I mean he was literally standing upright on two disturbingly humanoid legs, with arms casually hanging at his sides. He looked directly at me. He didn't move his body when I approached, but the slightest turn of his head with his dark eyes trained on me let me know that I was being watched. Oddly enough, the fact that this thing was making it a point to stare into my soul wasn't even what disturbed me the most about it. No, what really got me was the buzzing or ringing in my ears the longer I maintained eye contact. It filled me with an incredible sense of sorrow the more I let it grow, and the only way of getting rid of it was to turn away completely. I shut my eyes, half sprinted out of the room, only turning back when I heard what sounded like a small door slamming behind me and found an empty cage where the rat had once stood. When I finally returned to the dinner table, Jacob immediately called out how long I'd been gone and the noticeable beads of sweat forming on my brow. Bewildered, I looked Jacob dead in the eye and asked when the hell he became such a neat freak, got over his fear of rodents, got a rat, and then proceeded to teach that same rat to stand on two legs and stare at whoever came by. A 
his response was I don't even know how to explain it he he kind of just laughed at me maybe he was laughing at this situation I, I don't know the point being his response was yeah Mr. Katz he is an interesting character isn't he I'm sorry, what? I thought maybe he didn't hear me or thought I was messing with him, so I reiterated my experience, and he shook his head and said he totally understood me. <sighs> Strange as it was, I decided to drop it. I couldn't rationalize it at the time, but honestly, I'm not a rat expert. Maybe that's a normal thing they do from time to time. Perhaps he just really liked to mess with people now, and teaching his pet to stand and stare is a great way to do it. Creepy as that rat is, it's still just a rat. When we finished eating dinner, Jacob and I went outside to go on a mini hike, grab some snacks, and hit up some of our old stomping grounds. Within a few hours of hanging out, that warm sense of nostalgia and happiness began to fill me up again, so much so that I had nearly forgotten about the creepy pet rat. In our travels around town, I often found Jacob taking a second to absorb things. One of my favorite qualities about Jacob has always been his ability to appreciate the moments and put it into context in a positive way. Whatever the situation, he's always been great at putting things into perspective and grounding us. But this time, he seemed unsure. It was as if looking back at his past made him scared for the future. After going off to school, finding someone he thought he'd be in love with, and getting a new job and apartment, things were looking up. Until they weren't. And he had ended up right back where he was. I could see a sense of frustration building up in him as he looked at his best friend, seeing all his memories as just that. Memories. A past life. While for him, it was just his everyday existence. Same old, same old, same old. Once it fully hit me that being out there wasn't as fun for Jacob as it was for me, I suggested we head back and chill at his house for a bit before I went back. When we returned, things took another turn for the weird. All the cars in front of the garage were gone. No one had mentioned going out earlier. In fact, Jacob's parents and siblings made reference to seeing us later. Yet, the house was completely empty and silent. I asked Jacob where his family had gone. Rooms, bathroom, backyard, nothing. Again, he laughed it off and made a weird comment about how they were probably off somewhere bettering themselves. Taking that as a moment where I silently shake my head and move on, I thought we'd end the night with a dumb movie and some shots before I return to my hotel. Two shots of whiskey and half an Eric Andre special in, and Jacob casually turns to me and mumbles, I knew he was going to get sick, you know, before he told us. The world drained away for a moment. I turned back to Jacob, dumbfounded, and replied with a stumbly, What? Who? He gave me a blank stare before pulling out his phone, scrolling to a text thread that he had with himself, and showing me a text detailing precisely what our mutual friend had told us. 
Not just that, but he had sent this to himself a week prior. I didn't know how or why, and before I could ask if Jacob just happened to have been told before the rest of us were, he showed me another from that same day, one about me. It said how I'd planned a two-week road trip after hearing the news how I'd come by to see Jacob on the last leg of my journey and the exact day and time I'd be there. Before he could go any further, I smacked the phone out of his hand and told him to stop. If this trip was some elaborate prank, then okay, but he could at least have the balls to leave our friend out of his weird joke. He shook his head and told me I didn't get it. There wasn't a joke. I wanted to leave that second, but I felt frozen. What could he mean? Before Jacob could explain further, I heard my name being called from the slightly obscured door leading to the garage. It sounded like Jacob's mom. A wave of relief washed over me. I'd forgotten entirely that the family had an entrance to their garage and had converted it to a secondary living room. Whatever was going on with Jacob, he wasn't doing well, and at the very least, I felt the need to tell his parents to get him some help. With a simple, yeah, give me a sec, I hopped up from the couch and half-jogged toward the garage with Jacob steering me down the entire way. Blindly, I opened the door and began to blurt out an unorganized sentence about how something was wrong, but was met with a meaty hand in my mouth, a secondary arm around my abdomen, and a deafening shh. Jacob's parents and two siblings were standing in a nearly empty garage, fixated on the one thing that I'd hoped to never see again. A table with a large white cage containing a model house and a chubby brown rat standing in front of it. It was being held in place by Jacob's massive father. All I could do was dart my eyes over to the young girl closest to the table, mumbling under her breath excitedly. Come on, do something, do something, please. Mr. Katz, however, didn't seem to mind the girl. His soulless black eyes, which seemed just a little too big for his skull, were trained directly on me. As much as I didn't want it, I couldn't help but look back. Something deep within me wanted to observe what it would do. And when I got my answer, a sense of confusion followed. Where before the chubby rat seemed to stand motionless, now it had begun to rhythmically sway back and forth. I watched as the fat rat moved his body like a pendulum, my body going numb with each sway. As the world grew increasingly fuzzy, a distinct buzz grew louder and louder. However, this time it was different. This time the buzz was accompanied by a voice. Probably the most comforting voice I'd ever heard. One that told me that everything would be alright that Mr. Katz only wanted what was best for me and that I should be grateful to be in his presence. I was in a safe home, after all. I was surrounded by people that loved me. I got to experience great memories. And for all the uncertainty, 
Mr. Katz did seem like a great rat after all. A rat that should be respected and loved, revered even. That's why he had such a big home in his cage. Maybe he deserved an even bigger one. And maybe in return, he'd give me something. Knowledge. What could be greater than that? In a split second, that angelic embrace was sucked away, and what replaced it was pure dread. Images of horror I could never imagine seared themselves into my memory. Profoundly dark revelations about loved ones and strangers flowed through my mind. Evil secrets about the things you and I question daily became loud, harsh truths. I saw crimes yet to be committed, mass events impacting thousands of innocents, and the unrelenting wave of sorrow accompanying the seemingly innocuous actions of our daily existence, and the inescapable knowledge of where our choices were leading us. I tried distracting myself, but with every failed attempt at an intrusive thought, something ten times sicker would enter my brain. A panic attack rose to a fever pitch, but I wouldn't be granted the sweet relief of stress-induced numbness. I was teetering on the precipice of the deepest despair, anxiety, and depression as the thoughts ramped up again and again. Anguish, suffering, and a horrible destiny crashed like waves against a rocky beach. Each impact sent shockwaves inside me until finally... It stopped. The next thing I remember, I was on the ground looking up at Mr. Katz. I wiped the saliva from my mouth and tried to adjust my eyes on the demonic rodent who had now left his cage onto the tiny space on the table. He looked down at me with two black voids he had for eyes and gnawed on the still twitching body of a rather large cockroach. His puffy, lemon-yellow teeth methodically chewed on the gooey remains while his fleshy tail twitched behind him. I expected another round of excruciating mind games, but another voice came from behind me. Do you want to pray to Mr. Katz now? It said. To my surprise, standing next to the door, Jacob flashed a wide smile at me. You're my closest friend, Shakur. You're the only person outside my family I could share this gift with. Don't you want to know which of our friends will get married? Who will be successful and who will fail? Or when they'll die? He tells you things about yourself, too, you know. How to be a better you. How to... I yelled for him to shut up, and instinctively he did. Despite my outburst, everyone else still kept their eyes on the goddamn rat on the table. Everyone but Jacob, who took another step toward me and said that it really was my choice. But in all his years, no one has ever said no to Mr. Katz. In Jacob's words, Knowledge that great is too valuable to pass up. You'll never know what you'll learn. As I slowly got up to my feet, my mind was made up. I took a moment to process what had just happened. After briefly evaluating my choice, I concluded that I had never been more sure about anything in my life. 
I didn't know what the hell that thing was, but it damn sure wasn't what they thought it was. And I was absolutely positive that whatever it can do isn't just limited to putting some messed up thoughts in your brain. The last thing I'd ever want to do is piss it off. Carefully, I made my way over to Jacob and stuck out my right hand. He looked at it and smiled up at me. As he went to shake it, I threw a crappy left hook to his jaw. I'm not exactly Mike Tyson, but it did enough to stun him, which allowed me to shove him down and sprint back into the house and out the front door. I did what you should never do, and looked behind me to see Jacob's parents running after me. After a brief stumble, I managed to open the front door and jump into my car. I fumbled for the car keys in my pocket and barely got them into the ignition as the pair assaulted my windows. But luckily I was fast enough to slam my foot on the gas and speed off into the night in no particular direction. Only when I was sure I was far enough from them did I finally pull into a random parking lot and attempt to process my day before finally heading back to my hotel. Admittedly, I also stopped at a 24-hour gas station and bought an irresponsible amount of alcohol and found a late-night pizza place and ate my experience away until I passed out and woke up at God knows when. I'd planned to stay in town a little longer, but after that, I think I'm going to head home. I'm using my self-chosen last day here to write this down while the details are still fresh partly as a form of less expensive therapy and catharsis, partly because I'm still in shock and it's taken me a couple of times to read over my own story to accept what happened, and partly because I know Jacob will try and reach out to me. Bad as what happened was, Jacob, I love you, man. I don't know how all this started or why you need that thing in your life to show you awful futures, but please... Seek help. There are so many resources nowadays to help you heal, but until then, or until that thing is very dead, we can't see each other. We can't communicate. Nothing. What happened at your place is what happens when humans dive into the dark corners of the earth that we were never supposed to see. And I'm sorry that that corner won't let you go. I wish... I wish I could be there to help, which may make me a bad person, but I can't. I saw so many horrible things, horrible things about people I love or loved, things I may have to go to the police about, futures I have to consider telling them about or letting happen. It's not fair. None of this. And I wish I knew the answers, but I don't. Until this is sorted, and who knows if it'll ever be. This has to be goodbye. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed tonight's stories. If you did, be sure to leave a like and a comment down below telling me which one that you enjoyed more. Enjoy it. Did you enjoy the classic story or the more modern no-sleep story? I liked them both a lot. 
And I do have an extra question for you. Uh, since the second story was about a pet, more or less, I guess you could call it a pet. I'm not really sure what it was supposed to be. Uh, what was the name of your childhood pet? Or what's the name of your pet now? The one I remember the most, we got him when he was a kitten, a little cat. His name was Gizmo, named after Gizmo from the Gremlins. He was an amazing cat. He lived to be 13 or 14. I think we got him when I was maybe 12 or 13. And he lived up until around the time I made it out of high school, I think. He was an old guy, but he was also a great, great cat. Anyways, I hope you all enjoyed tonight's stories. If you did, like I said, leave a like, comment, and subscribe if you're new here. Check me out on TikTok as well. I upload there pretty often as well. And uh, we're doing some fun stuff over there. All the links for everything will be down in the description below. I'll shut up now, and I have some bloopers here for you on the end screen. So, good night, everyone. Hope you have a wonderful day, afternoon, or evening. And as always, stay safe out there. When we finished eating dinner, 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 oh my fucking God, what the hell was that? Again, you laughed it off and made a weird comment about how, 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 my goodness.